Good morning. Good to see everyone here. If you have your Bibles, tune to Ephesians chapter 4. That's what we're going to be in today. We're going to take a little detour from our uh, series in 1 Peter, have a little one-off sermon. So Ephesians chapter 4, that's where we'll be uh, today. And uh, one of the things that really struck me about this passage is that it's such a clear manual for what the church of Christ should be like, what the, uh, what the motivation for church is, what the source of the church is, and how we understand what it means to be the church. And I think, especially now in a time when that is a big question, when we're sort of scattered, when everything's fractured in our culture, when we aren't able to meet together, when we're having a live stream and socially distanced and all of these things, this is the time to really get our bearings on what are we doing when we come together to hear the word preached? What are we doing when we come together to take the Lord's table and to sing together? What is happening here? Is this just community gathering? Is it just a club of people with similar interests, or is there something more to this? And so Ephesians, I think, really maps that out for us, especially when it comes to the word unity. I think unity is a, is a common buzzword that we have now. Everybody's searching for unity. There's so much division in our culture, so much division amongst our neighbors, even within families, and we desperately crave unity, but we are unable to grasp it. It's very difficult, and there are many different strategies that our culture Attempts. One of them is to silence anybody who disagrees with a certain opinion and just call it unity. To just isolate in their own echo chambers and pretend like everything's fine. Or we seek to ignore difficult conversations on gender, on race, on politics, on our place in culture, and we call that unity. Both of these are very superficial solutions. But if we're the church, if we're not just community gathering, if we're not just a club of similar interests, but if we really are the church of Christ bound together by His Spirit, then we have a resource and a foundation that is countercultural to the world, that is fundamentally different and able to accomplish things that the world can't. We are not just another organization among many. We are the body of Christ. And we have at the heart good news. That God has reconciled sinners to himself. And on that foundation, he's reconciled sinners to one another. In Christ, by his spirit. So God has done what we are incapable of doing. He has already united us in his son. So we go, there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. Well, there's also nothing we can do to, to create the unity that we need. This is all divine grace. And this changes everything for how we understand who we are as a church. So I want you to keep that in mind, the idea of unity as a gift of divine grace as we read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Read along with me. 
I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that your word would dwell in us richly today, that you would speak to us through the preaching of your word, and that you would encourage us and strengthen us to do the work of unity, and that you would remind us of our common baptism, our common faith, our common spirit, our common father, and our common hope and calling. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Ephesians follows a very simple pattern. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesians, he starts off by telling the Ephesians what God has done by His grace. And he moves from what God has done to what we must do. So all of the commands in the book of Ephesians rest on a foundation of grace. Grace is the foundation for all of God's commands. This is your new identity in Christ. You were one family, you were once strangers, now you're fellow citizens. You were once lost, now you're found. You were once children of wrath, now you are children of God. This is your new identity. Now live out that identity. God has objectively done something to unite sinners to himself and together. That is true. And now you are commanded to believe that and to have that belief permeate all of your actions and all of your interactions with one another. If you think about a wedding, when a man and a woman are standing at the altar, they're they exchange vows, and then they're proclaimed husband and wife. And in one sense, nothing happens. There's the, the, the same two people before the vows and after the vows. And yet, in another sense, everything changes. Their fundamental identity has shifted. They're no longer a single male and a single female. They are a husband and a wife. 
Their complete orientation to themselves and to the world is completely changed. They have a new identity, a new union. And their job for the rest of their lives is to live out that union. You are now one. Now do the hard work of living out what God has already declared over you. The identity comes first, and that is where the commands to unity rest. And in a similar way, Paul opens up Ephesians chapter 4 by saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Past tense. You have been called to something. God has called you already into unity. Now, if that's true, objectively, walk that out. Live the way that God has already declared you are. And because we're united in Christ by the Spirit, we live out that unity in real time. But how do we do that? Well, I think there's three things we need to understand. First, we need to understand the source of our unity, the source of our unity. Second, the means of our unity. How do we actually accomplish it? And finally, the goal of our unity. Where is this all going to? The source, the means, and the goal. First, what is the source of our unity? The source of our unity is God. It is God himself. In other words, God's character and nature is represented by how his church acts. What have we been called to? The, the, the calling that Paul talks about, he grounds in the Trinity. Think about what he says. One body in one spirit, with one Lord and one Father. One spirit, one Lord Jesus Christ, one Father. God himself dwells among us. You're in Christ, you have the Spirit, you're adopted by God. And you have that in common with every other believer. Whether or not you like that other believer, whether or not you agree with that other believer, that cement has already dried, that foundation is already laid. And that is the ground by which you can look at someone and say, you're my brother, you are my sister. The bond of peace is a gift of grace. The bond of peace is the fact that if we're united to God and that person's united to God, then we are united to each other. This is a done deal. So the, the church celebrates that unity by all of these external signs. Notice what else Paul says is the ground of our unity. He says we're united in, in God, one faith and one baptism, one confession and one external Sign. Why do we celebrate baptisms? That's the entrance into God's family, a public declaration of faith. They go through the same waters as you. Doesn't matter their ethnic background, their socioeconomic status, their gender, what, their, what kind of family they grew up in. They're baptized just like you are. And we sing and speak the same word of God that confesses our Faith. This is why the creeds 
are so important to speak out loud together. This is why we do the read and response in our liturgy. We're all saying the same truth. We all depend on the same Christ. We all believe the same word of God. So these external acts glue us together, just like a regular family dinner glues together a family. It's a reminder that there is a fundamental unity beneath all of our other differences. And remember, when you hear the word of God, I mean, what happens when we gather? God summons his church to us. That's why we have a call to worship, not a summon of God. Who's calling us to worship? God calls us to worship, which means what? He is here. So, when the word is preached, you're not hearing about God, you're hearing from God, from his word. And when you sing, you're not just singing about God, but you're singing to God. And when you take the Lord's Supper, you're not just remembering God, but you are sharing the meal with God. And the whole idea is God dwells in his church. He is the one who unifies us. I remember watching a testimony of this gang member. He, he spent a lot of time in prison, and he was converted in prison. And he said, before his conversion, in prison, you basically had to align with your racial group. That was how you survived. And it wasn't until he was converted that he realized how much hatred he had for people of other races. He was a Hispanic man. And what was interesting was that everybody desires unity. We're going to find a tribe no matter what. We can't. No man is an island. So it's not whether... We, just, we want unity, but what kind of unity are we seeking? And he said when he was converted, when he was changed by the Spirit of God, that hatred began to crack. And he realized in the church he had something deeper than racial affiliation or gang affiliation. And he realized that this person who was different from him was saved by the same blood and forgiven by the same Christ that he was when God calls a people to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation, he doesn't slap a Jesus band-aid on everything and say, we're good. He does gospel surgery. He gets under the skin, right down to joints and marrow, right down to the heart. This is why worship shapes our unity. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, if you hate each other, if there are divisions and factions in the church and you take the Lord's Supper, it's not the Lord's Supper. You're just eating bread. You're just eating bread. There should not be those divisions among you. In fact, if you hate your brother in the church before you take the Lord's Supper, you need to go up to them and reconcile because the Lord's Supper is a sign of our unity. It's a sign that we are one. And that we are working towards that oneness. And this means that we need to view people the way that God views them. You, you may, people might annoy you. People might drive you crazy with what they post on Facebook, hypothetically speaking, if that ever happens, if you've ever seen that. But one of the things that we're called to is, what does God, does God see their sin? Of course he does. But what does he also see? Baptized. In Christ adopted with my spirit. One of the most humbling things is when you realize somebody that is a believer that you have a disagreement with or that you have tension with, 
God is also their father, and he loves them. And he's working in their life, just like he's working in yours. That's a humbling reminder. This is a messy process. But the result of viewing people the way that God views them, through the lens of the gospel, is not being naive. It's not acting like everything's fine. But it is walking, as Paul says, in humility and gentleness. We have to get over ourselves. We assume the mind of Christ, and we walk in humility and gentleness with one another. Think about Jesus with his disciples. I mean, they just never got it. They were frustrating, to say the least. Jesus had some harsh words to say to them. And yet, what did he do? He loved them to the end. And he cared for them. And he was patient with them. That's why Paul says, don't just walk in humility and gentleness, but do it for the long haul. Do it with patience and eagerness. Do it with a smile on your face. Do it because you want to. Do it because you're called to that. Because it's a joyful thing to do. Because you're willing to put in the work. Why does Paul give this command? Why does he give any command? Because he knows it's difficult to do it. He knows that we're going to be needed, that we're going to need that reminder. You need to do this. You're united, but just to remind you, this implies something about how you are to treat one another. This is a messy process. How patient does God want you to be? One step further than you're willing to, right? How, how, how eager does he want you to be? Probably one step more eager than you feel like it today. And that's the point. The commands push us to go, to accomplish this, we need God. We need, we need grace. We need the Spirit of God to empower us to do this because this is not humanly possible. This is a problem God wants us to have. He wants us to be rubbing shoulders enough, to care about each other enough, that we bother each other. And then when we bother each other, we go, what do we do? What do I do with this person, this brother in Christ that I'm bonded to? How do I deal with this person? And we open up the Bible, we go to Ephesians 4, and we go, okay, I guess I have to do this. We have to consult the manual. Because we're actually in relationship with each other. We actually have tensions because we actually care and know and talk to each other. And then we ask God to help us in those moments, live out the unity that God has already bought for us. Our unity comes from God, through God, and it's back to God. He is the source of our unity, and that is the foundation that allows us to do the very hard work of walking in humility, gentleness, patience with each other. That's the source of unity, God himself. What is the means of unity? How do we accomplish this unity? Or what does God work in us? Or how does he work in us to create this unity in the church? And that's the word, the word of God. The word of God is how unity is built. What's fascinating about Ephesians 4 is that Paul says grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So the Holy Spirit has gifted every single person in the church 
with spiritual gifts to serve one another. But then he gets really specific about a subset of gifts that he gives. He talks about giving apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers, or pastor-teacher, depending on how you translate it. In other words, God gives people as a gift. He says, Jesus Christ in his ascension from the dead fulfills Psalm 98, that when Christ rose up to be at the right hand of the Father, he distributed gifts to the church, and those gifts are ministers, are people. Now, I'm going to focus particularly on pastors and teachers, but a lot can be said about apostles, prophets, evangelists, whether apostles and prophets still continue. If you want to talk about that, we can talk about that after the service, but I want to focus specifically on pastor teachers. Now, in the Bible, you'll see uh, pastors, teachers, shepherds, overseers, all those are interchangeable. They all mean the same thing. Okay, they're, sent, they're, they're pastors. They're, they're men called by God to teach the Word of God to the church. Okay, that, that's so when we have at Four Oaks, we have pastors and elders. It's the same thing. Every elder we have is a pastor. Every pastor we have is an elder. They're all called to be competent in teaching the Word of God to the people. So in a very real sense, what has God gifted Midtown with? Lance, Zach, Larry, Jeff, Bryson. God has gifted people to us for our unity to teach and feed us the Word of God. Because what does Paul say that we're united? We're united into the fullness of Christ through the knowledge of the Son of God, through knowing Christ. Through knowing Christ, as we know Him, we are bonded closer together. It, sometimes, it, it, you know, we, people can try to sound spiritual, being like, man, I just need my Bible and my notebook and Starbucks. I just have my wonderful devotion times. The problem is, one morning in your devotions at Starbucks, you're going to come to Ephesians 4, and your Bible is going to tell you you need a pastor. And you've got to write for your application that day, I need to join a church. The Bible calls us to be under pastor elders. We don't want to be more spiritual than God. This is commanded to us. 1 Peter 2, 2, he says that Pastors are men called to give the pure milk of the word to the church, pure milk to a newborn. Why do newborns need milk? They need it to feed upon so they grow up healthy, not malnourished, so they can mature into adult, grown-up Christians. So doctrine doesn't divide. People divide. You can be a jerk about your doctrine. Right? You can be arrogant about your doctrine, but doctrine itself doesn't divide. What does the Bible say? It unites. In the knowledge of the Son of God, that is what binds us together. And it's not godly to say, well, you know, I don't like this doctrine stuff. You know, I don't like this theology stuff. Let's just love Jesus. It's like, okay, well, who's Jesus? Is he God? Is he a man? How does that work? What does faith mean? How do you love Jesus? If you answer any of those, that's your doctrine. You cannot avoid it. It's not whether we have doctrine, but which doctrine do we have? 
And the pastor teacher is assigned to build the church on strong, solid doctrine. So what we want is a unity that is built on the truth, not a superficial unity built on ignorance or built on every fad or every new, you know, cultural idea. We want it built upon the word of truth. Carl Truman, one of my favorite writers, he once observed in one of his seminary classes, he teaches at a seminary, or he used to teach at a seminary, and he noticed that none of his students mentioned their local pastor as their most influential preacher or favorite preacher. It was always a celebrity. And often, great, you know, I love John Piper, Tim Keller's great, John MacArthur's great, and all that stuff, but he was making a point. He was saying the model of the church is those celebrity pastors or those well-known preachers or, you know, lifestyle bloggers or whatever, whatever we, all the people that we, you know, love, they don't pastor you. They don't know you. They don't know the depression you deal with. They don't know what your marriage is like. They don't know the burdens of your life. They don't know the pain. They don't know the joys. They're not your pastor. And it gets worse in the larger church culture where we listen to Christian influencers simply because they're famous. And a lot of them are rich. And we kind of like that. But who has God called to be the shepherds of your souls to point you to Christ? Who has God gifted you with? Your pastors and your elders. So what voices influence your life the most? Notice that he says that pastors, they don't just feed sheep, they shoot wolves. They defend the truth. They defend the church from false doctrine. And false doctrine, false teaching is deceptive and cunning. That's what he says. Cunning schemes, deceptive teaching, things that sound okay, that, that center on our insecurities and fears and give us half-truth. False teaching is marketed very well. And it's, it's meant to be just palatable enough that it has the tinge of truth. I think one of our current false teachings that comes into the church is if, if the Reformation was about salvation by faith alone, I think today it's salvation by feelings alone. Constantly checking our pulse, how we feel. That's our standing with God. Or, or in a larger cultural sentiment, you know, I, I feel like I'm a woman inside, regardless of what my body says, or every chromosome in my body says. Or I feel like I no longer love my husband. I feel like this marriage is restraining me. Or I feel like this certain group of people with this culture or this skin color, I feel like they're not good people or they're dangerous. Feelings. And what is a pastor? Right? What's the image we get? 
We don't want to be children in a boat and the waves are crashing against the side and our sail is fractured and we're flipping around and we don't know where we're going. And it's just a haze and a mess of our emotions and political opinions and social media and everything going on around us. And the pastor is a guy with the compass of the Word of God going, keep going towards Christ. In the storm, keep going this direction. All the fads, all the things, all the opinions. Follow your true north towards Christ by the Word of God. That's what a pastor does. He, just, he points people to Christ. He's a shepherd that shepherds people to the great shepherd. I don't want to demystify too much, but like that's, you know, the elders, they're not magical. They, they don't have secret Jedi knowledge. They simply are competent in teaching the Word of God. They're men of character, and they know Jesus, and they know that Jesus can help you in whatever you're going through. And they're just pointing you north in the storm. And what happens when the Word of God dwells in our hearts richly? The Word says that we sing songs and hymns to each other and to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? When the Word of God dwells in a church richly, we sing together. What's happening? The Word is uniting us. Despite all of our differences, we're united by the same truth and we sing about it. God builds our unity through His Word. And He funnels that Word through the preaching of the Word. This is why we preach through books of the Bible. We want to give the whole Word, all of it, and apply it to all of life for God's glory. So the source is God's, God Himself. And the means is through the preaching of His Word into the church. And the final goal of our unity is love. The goal of our unity is love. God creates our unity by the blood of Christ, and He unites us so that we would become, as Paul says at the end of Ephesians, or in, in, in the final verses of this section that we're looking at, he says that we, the, the body, when every part is working together, every part is healthy, every part is connected the body starts to build itself up in love. And so that's the goal, a body of believers who love each other. That's the mark of maturity. And I love that image, a body. What, bodies are a unified structure with interdependent parts. If your legs are weak, the whole body suffers. If your heart fails, your body shuts down. Each part needs to be strengthened and equipped. And each part must recognize that their function is for the good of the body. In other words, the love that we are called as members of the body is to be self-sacrificial. I mean, that's, that's the definition of love. And the pastor-teachers are to feed the Word of God, to equip the saints so that they are healthy and strong in the Word, so that the saints minister to one another, so that the whole body grows up into maturity, which is manifested in love one another. I remember uh, John MacArthur, <laughs> he had like a Twitter question and answer thing, and somebody asked him, how do you get out of a spiritual rut if you just feel dry in your spiritual life? And he said, the best way to do that 
is to take your mind off yourself and serve someone else. And I was like, what's the second best way? <laughs> is, there, is there an option two? Maybe it's not that bad of a rut. I don't know. But it's true. Paul gives a clear command. We know that we're functioning properly as members of the body if the culture in our church is one of love and service to one another. But Paul says, this is specifically what I mean. You speak the truth in love to one another. You speak the truth in love. We, our, our, our motive needs to be the good of, uh, of the other person, and our words need to be true. Right? Sometimes you have good motives, your words maybe not so true. <laughs> the content isn't that great, but you appreciate the effort. Right? But other times, it's possible to have the tone of love, but a motive of selfishness. And the Bible calls that flattery. It sounds so sweet, so kind, so loving. But really, what they're doing is they're using you to boost their own ego. They're using you to be an approval machine for them. They don't actually care about your ultimate good. We have to be very careful not to confuse flattery with love. They are not the same thing. It's also possible to be perceived as harsh, but doing it in love. Speaking the truth in love means you will say things to people and they will hate you in the moment for it. They will get mad at you. They will want you to rephrase it over and over again until you end up not saying anything at all. And in that moment, you have to really love them. I heard about a, a group of elders in a church. It's not, it's not this church. It's not even a church in this state, okay? So just... <laughs> so, but they were gathering together, and one of the younger elders, it's a funny thing to say, but he was a younger man. He was an elder of the church. They were, the, the elders were gathering together to discuss a very sensitive issue in the church. And the younger elder knew that one of the older elders, his senior elders, one, a man that he greatly loved and respected, was too close to the situation. He wouldn't be able to rightly handle it. And he was concerned for his soul. And so he, he called him up late one night, because he'd been working up the courage all day, and he called the older elder and said, hey, you know, I love you, I, I just, I, I, you know, I know your weaknesses, and I just think if you're part of this particular meeting, um, you're going to be sinfully angry and I don't want you to sin, and, I'm, and I don't want you to be tempted. And the older elder was very offended, and he was very angry about it, but he's like, okay, fine, I won't come. And later on, the older elder realized he had just been loved by this young man who approached him with fear and trembling, intimidated, but he realized, man, this, this guy cares for me. He's willing to take my anger, and he's willing to take the burden of maybe not being liked for a little bit because what mattered to him was my soul. What mattered to him was my heart. We can talk all we want about accountability and have all kinds of boards and meetings and whatever, but you, if it's not built on love, it's just a show. Speak the truth in love. But the truth in love is not just about correction. Right? It's not just about saying the hard thing to people. It's also about encouragement. 
It's also about encouragement. We need to encourage each other with the Word of God. So if pastor teachers are feeding the Word of God and we're growing in our knowledge of the Word of God, we are equipped to feed each other and help each other and teach each other the Word of God, all the things that God promises, the character of God, the nature of God. What is Titus 2 about? Older women teach younger women. Older men teach younger men. Disciple each other. We need older women to tell young moms with three little kids who feel like they're making mistakes all the time and they don't know if they should homeschool or not and they're freaking out and they're worried they're going to screw up their kids and there's all these anxieties and, and they never measure up to, to everything they see in the world. You just need an older woman to be like, you're going to be okay. Nobody gets this perfect. But God is faithful, right? God hears your prayers. God cares about you. You're not alone in this. You're going to be Okay. We need older men to grab younger men and say, look, I know it's hard to try to lead your home. I know you've been failing and you feel down, but look, you're making progress. You're different from what you were a year ago. And this is a process. Man, it took me a long time to figure this out. You're doing great. Keep going. God's going to be faithful. God's with you. He's working in you. He's going to help you. Or you need older professionals, they'll be young professionals who are figuring out, I feel like a failure. I haven't accomplished all these things. Did I waste my life? Is John Piper mad at me? You know, what's going on? I feel meaningless. I don't like my job. I don't know what the purpose is. You need an older professional to go, look, just chill out. Chill out. You're not a failure, okay? Let's pray together. God has a purpose for you. He's going to finish the work that he started. I've gone through this. It's not the end of the world. We can, walk, we, we can walk through this together. It's basic discipleship. I remember asking one of my counseling professors. I was like, because yeah, I'm like, did you ever think the Apostle Paul needed therapy? Did he go to a biblical counselor? And I love what he said. He goes, no. He walked to wells with Peter. Miles and miles to get water, Talking. I was like, wow, that's pretty good. So much of good counseling, you ever been to a good counselor, is friendship, isn't it? It's friendship. We've got to walk to wells together. We've got to spend time with each other. It doesn't always have to be super deep, intense, soul-wrenching conversations. But we encourage each other with the Word of God. That's how we grow up into a body of love, into unity. We look at one another and we go, let me, let me, let me pray for you. I mean, that, this is one practical thing you can do. You know, if, if you sign up to our church planning app, you can find all the contacts and names of people. Is that right, Susan? Are you giving me? Well, you can find out people's names in your church. You can ask them. You can talk to them. Just find people or just start with people that you know and start thinking, all right, I'm just going to take two of them every day and I'm going to pray for them. Even if you just meet them, you can just write down, you can just find a prayer in one of the epistles. You can go to Ephesians. Just find a prayer that Paul prays and pray that for that prayer, pray for that person maybe you don't really know. 
And that's going to knit your heart together to people. And then you might think, well, I've been praying for the person. Might as well just like sit with them or talk with them. And if you're praying for people you do know, tell them. Tell them, hey, I, I prayed for you this morning. This is what I prayed for you for. Very simple things that we can do to knit our hearts together. That's the goal of unity, love. So God begins the work of unity by uniting us in Christ by his spirit. And then he works out that unity in our lives through the preaching of the word, through ministers that he has given as a gift, with the goal of a body of love. And again, it's, not, it's a very messy process. It's not pretty. It takes time. We're never going to achieve perfect unity until Christ returns. But this is what we keep pushing towards. And this is a naive idealism. This isn't just sort of, you know, like, kumbaya, you know, we all hold hands and we're all going to be fine. No, I mean, this is going to be difficult. I mean, Christians are capable of doing horrible things to each other. Churches can be really nasty places because we're sinners. We're all hypocrites. It's true. All of it's true. Do you know what the greatest gift the Father gives to the Son in the Bible is? The final gift he gives? It's a bride. It's us. No one sees the flaws of the church better than Christ. Nobody sees our unfaithfulness. Nobody sees our sins. Nobody sees our disunity, our hatred, our all, all these things. He sees it all. No one is more grieved by our failures and disunity than the Lord. But when Christ looks at us, he still says, that's my bride. Isn't she stunning? The Lord Jesus Christ never abandons his church. Neither should we. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would continue to grow us in unity, to help us believe this truth and to live it out. There is a, a lot of work to be done but we know that you're faithful and we don't do this work alone. Help us to walk worthy of the calling to which you've called us. Let the, word of, let the word of God dwell in us richly. Let us, in the spirit, maintain the bond of peace and be encouraged in this time of trial, with the pandemic, with all the unrest, that we would have hope. I ask us in Jesus' name. Amen.